Hello, and welcome back to The Indie, a podcast from the Santa Barbara Independent giving you what's happening in Santa Barbara. I'm Molly McEnany, the host of The Indie, and I'm here this week with Charles Donnellan, executive arts editor for The Independent, discussing his cover story on the Dalai Lama. Now, UCSB Arts and Lectures has a new series called Creating Hope, which features the Dalai Lama. So Charles, you were part of a group of people recently in contact with the Dalai Lama for this event. So how does the Dalai Lama and his motto relate to this theme of creating hope? Hi, Molly. Well, lots of ways. Uh, First of all, there's a long-standing relationship between His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and UCSB. And this is uh, in part observing the anniversary of uh, the establishment of an endowed chair in the religious studies program called the Dalai Lama Chair in Tibetan religion. Um, But really, you know, it's just an incredibly timely thing because um, as Pico Iyer, who is the um, close friend of the Dalai Lama who will be conducting this conversation with him that we're going to hear. It's coming up on the 18th of May. As, as Pico puts it, you know, he, the Dalai Lama, is kind of the master of taking something seemingly really bad. For him, it was, you know, having many people in his family killed, having China throw his country out of their homeland. But now, you know, for us, it's uh, having had a rough year with the pandemic and with all the issues that we've had around racial justice and turning those those seemingly bad things, those actually bad things, into openings uh, for possible improvement. He is the kind of avatar of this idea that you can turn something potentially disastrous into an opportunity for growth. So creating hope, which is the theme for this entire series, is what he's been all about all along. Pico likes to say that his motto uh, is the same as as, um, Barack Obama back when he ran for the first time, when he said, yes, we can. So he's going to come and um, he's going to talk to Pico, but he's really going to address people all over the world, the uh, the broadcast is going to be available for free on YouTube and translated simultaneously into multiple languages, including Tibetan. And it will be uplifting in the way that really only the Dalai Lama is capable of. He's an extraordinarily effective public speaker. So a bit about the 20th anniversary of the establishment of the Dalai Lama Professor of Tibetan Religion at UCSB. I know the professor is Jose Cabazon, and I wanted to talk a little bit about history because he has a pretty interesting path that led up to becoming this professor at UCSB. Absolutely. And just a terrific and generous person. And wow, I got to say, this has been such a treat as a reporter to um, have these conversations because... uh, Everyone involved in this, and I want to include Celeste Belletti at Arts and Lectures as well, but Pico and uh, Jose, these guys, they radiate this quality. They're just extraordinarily well-adjusted individuals. I mean, they really walk the walk of the <laughs> Buddhist <laughs> enlightenment. Jose's really interesting story. He was a child prodigy in science. Uh, he grew up in Cuba, but he was accepted to Caltech where he was a physicist until uh, in his senior year, he decided that the really big ideas he was interested in were ideas that he was finding in uh, Buddhism. And so he spoke to his teachers, uh, his deans at Caltech, and in their wisdom, they said, well, why don't you just go to India? 
and he became a Buddhist monk for 10 years, in addition to finishing scholarly work and receiving a PhD. And as a result, he's this kind of amazing hybrid and a perfect type of person to be the interpreter of the Dalai Lama's current incarnation, because, you know, he's the 14th Dalai Lama. He's an incarnation of the Dalai Lama. But the, the reason that Jose is such a great person for this particular role right now is that uh, in addition to, you know, incredibly rigorous studies of Tibetan Buddhism, the 14th Dalai Lama is really, really sophisticated student of Western science. And he has insisted that the Tibetan monks in India now all have to study physics and contemporary science because he believes that the two sciences have a lot to learn from one another. And he insists that Buddhism is a kind of science. So he seems like a fairly intellectual Dalai Lama and it's the 14th reincarnation. What is that process like and what did you learn from the Dalai Lama about his backstory? Yeah, this is so interesting. He's 85. And so he has to think about um, what will happen in terms of succession. And it has become very complicated because, as you know, or as you may know, the selection of the Dalai Lama is a mystical process involving divination, dreams and astrology and Buddhist meditation. And they go out into the countryside and it's not a uh, hereditary position. The monks are told, essentially, uh, that this person is the reincarnation of the Bodhisattva. And they go and they find him. And it can be like the 14th Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, somebody from a very humble background, who, until they come and knock on the door, has no idea that this is going to be their life. And they found him at age two. And they began educating him at age six. And by the time he was 15, he was the leader of a nation of 6 million people negotiating with Franklin Delano Roosevelt about the Second World War, going as a very young man to Beijing and talking to uh, Mao and trying to settle the differences between China and Tibet. Ah, which brings us to the question of who will be the 15th or whether there'll be a 15th Dalai Lama, which is a difficult question right now because China has made its intentions clear that they plan to choose a Dalai Lama who will likely be a child of members of the Communist Party because they consider themselves to have sovereignty over Tibet. It's part of their territory. And this is obviously not the way in which Tibetan Buddhists understand this process. There shouldn't be political considerations. And so now it's really an interesting question. Um, Dalai Lama has said that he may even discontinue the practice if necessary in order to avoid dispute over the legitimacy of the successor. So this whole reincarnation question, you know, it's really, it's, it's fascinating, really hard to wrap your head around for me. Well, in the process of going and finding someone, a baby, in some far off village that, you know, the stars suddenly aligned on this person who is the reincarnation. That's a very, very complicated process. And I, I think there are other claimants right now, rivals in other much, much smaller sects within Buddhism. But I think the thing that, you know, most people recognize, but, but really deserves to be emphasized is that this man, who is the 14th Dalai Lama, if anybody has ever lived up to that role, 
this is the guy. <laughs> he has had such an extraordinary career and has become such a powerful communicator. One thing I, I really came away from all these conversations and from the various videos and things that I've reviewed in, in working on this story uh, with an incredibly powerful impression of how effective this man is in talking to different kinds of people. He is so skillful in reading the room and saying the thing that the people that he's talking to will get. It's quite extraordinary. His ability to bring complicated ideas to people in a way where they have an immediate impact. I think that is a testimony to his education, his intelligence. And in the modern era, he probably is the most prominent figure in this entire religion. And it's a huge part of society that, you know, Western civilization doesn't really get to touch a lot upon. But it's very interesting that Arts and Lectures is kind of diving into that. So I wanted to actually ask now, what did you speak to Celestia from Arts and Lectures about? Well, we were talking about, first of all, just how lucky we all are that this is happening and how fortunate in particular we are that, you know, we have this incredible liaison through Pico Iyer. And I cannot say enough good things about Pico. He is extraordinary. He's just such a great, generous, easy person to work with. And at the same time, uh, he has a profound understanding of this man and of his teaching. He's known him for 40 years because his father knew him as well. But he has spent the last 14 years traveling through Japan with the Dalai Lama on an annual basis. And uh, they uh, really spend all day together from breakfast till late at night. He is allowed to be with him and he's having personal audiences, you know, individual private audiences with people. And he has become an amazing sort of bridge between the Dalai Lama and the rest of the world. And we are so lucky that he's also from Santa Barbara. I mean, he lives most of the time in Japan, but he has roots here. He grew up here in part, and he has this wonderful close relationship with Arts and Lectures, you know, the Speaking with Pico series, which has been going for uh, several years now. And so without him, I don't think we would have quite the uh, claim that we do on the, the man's time and attention and, you know, we're very fortunate for that. So we talked about that. And we also talked about the fact that Creating Hope is uh, the runway to the reopening, the physical reopening of Campbell Hall and the Granada and the Arlington, because, uh, you know, arts and lectures, they want to be careful. They don't want to plan things and then have to uh, refund money and, and go through cancellations again. That was something that they experienced earlier in 2020, and it was no fun. But this Creating Hope series just feels so timely. You know, they've already had one event, perhaps more than one, but the one in particular, Songs of Comfort and Hope with Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott last week. And that was just fabulous. Not just the music, but also Yo-Yo Ma, another person who has become a kind of member of the Arts and Lectures family. And it's also, it's really a testament to um, the extraordinary leadership of Celeste Belecci and the way in which she has uh, created this network of people who feel comfortable with coming here and being in their most profound and positive selves as part of their visiting Santa Barbara. And uh, it, it's made life here, I think, infinitely more rich and rewarding. And especially at this time, uh, when we all really kind of need a little boost, we're going to create some hope. 
I agree. And what was one defining thing that you understood through your exchanges with the Dalai Lama? Oh, that's such a great question. Yes, because we got this exclusive email interview with him, which was just so exciting. And he ended the, uh, the interview, the last paragraph of these various emails that he sent um, was about the relationship between suffering, mental suffering, and physical comfort and distress. And I'm not going to get it exactly word for word, but I think I can communicate the concept because it really hit home for me. Basically, he said, if you're physically uncomfortable, mental exertion can help you handle pain. You can, you know, work hard to solve a problem and, and that will distract you from, I don't know, your toothache or something like this. But on the other hand, no amount of physical comfort will take away from mental unease. And it was just such a funny kind of profound thing, especially here in, you know, there's that saying everybody likes for Santa Barbara, we live in paradise. And I thought, well, you know, if we live in paradise, but we're not easy in our mental and emotional state, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I guess he just truly understands the power of the mind in a way. Yeah, well, and, 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 that, and that we need to be right with ourselves, that the uh, 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 resolution of our most intimate unease is an ethical dilemma. We have to be correct. We have to try to be good people because <laughs> no amount of luxury is going to help in that area. Yeah. Well, once again, I am looking forward to, and I know you are as well, because you are actually be in the visual audience with the Dalai Lama at UCSB Arts and Lectures. That's right. Yeah. But looking forward to watching that May 18th. And thank you once again, Charles Nolan, for speaking with me. Thank you. So much fun talking about this. I'm here with Matt Ketman, senior editor at The Independent, discussing an excerpt from his book featuring the vineyard workers in the field of local wineries. So Matt, of the people you spoke to, what's their backstory and relationship to growing grapes and cultivating this crop for wine? Well, yeah, so I uh, spent the last three years working on a, a book about Santa Barbara County winemakers and wine culture here. It's called Vines and Vision, the winemakers of Santa Barbara County. And, and I did it with Macduff Everton, who's a, a really renowned photographer here in Santa Barbara, worked for decades for National Geographic and all the Condé Nast publications. And so we had collaborated briefly on the Lark's cookbook. I wrote the wine chapter and he kind of handled the whole book publishing of that. And so he wrote, reached out to me and said, hey, we should do a wine book together. And this was in the fall of 2017. And I said, all right, let's do it. So we spent a lot of time, um, you know, going out to the vineyards. And, uh, you know, I was already very familiar with the vineyard scene here and Macduff had shot it a little bit over the years, but it was really like he had to dive in and, you know, learn this thing from the ground up. And so McDuff's also spent a lot of his career working in the Yucatan in Mexico. So his Spanish is phenomenal. He knows all the slang, he knows all the musicians and all that stuff. So he really connected with a lot of the vineyard workers who are, you know, typically from Mexico. Um, oftentimes they're, they're recent immigrants, sometimes they're second generation, but, but usually they're first generation. And he really connected with them. Uh, and he wanted to do something in the book to, to showcase their efforts because, you know, the, the wine culture is kind of a fancy culture. It can be. And so oftentimes what's overlooked are these people that are actually on the ground, you know, planting vines, pruning vines, harvesting the grapes. Uh, and so we've dedicated a whole chapter of the book called El Buena Equipo 
to showcase them and everyone else that it, that it requires to bring a vintage to market. So McDuff did the introduction where he tells the story of how he connected with a lot of these workers and he started to bring a black backdrop around and he would take their portraits and then he would return and give them printed pictures of the, you know, the printed portraits to them too, which was really cool. And at first they were a little reluctant and they said, well, why do you want to take our picture? And he said, recognition, like we should be recognizing the work you're doing. And at that point, they all got really excited about it and, and would line up when McDuff showed up to get their pictures taken. And so it was really kind of a fun thing. That chapter has that story. It has a bunch of kind of mini chapters on certain vintners and certain vineyard workers that, uh, you know, are of special renown. Um, and then it also has these series of yearbook-like pages where there, I think we had like 400 portraits of all sorts of people that are required to, to bring a vintage to market. So there's marketing people in there, there's vineyard owners, but then there's also, you know, vineyard workers and, and harvest crews and that sort of thing. So really kind of showing the whole scene and it's been really well-received chapter in the book. And, um, you know, people that are often overlooked are really, I think, proud to be, to be recognized finally. It's great to see that there's agency all the way down in this community. So Matt, you are also part of the SB Culinary Experience's first ever event since COVID, a panel of people discussing winemaking in an effort to raise money for People Helping People on Friday, May 21st. So can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so I'm actually on the advisory board or committee of Santa Barbara Culinary Experience. Our first event was scheduled, a big event, lots of different components. It was scheduled for March 13th, 14th, and 15th of 2020 which we had to cancel a few days before because of COVID. And so this is really kind of the first event. It's a virtual event that we're doing on, on May 21st. Uh, I'm moderating a panel that's really about that El Buena Equipo chapter in the book. McDuff, Everton's going to be on the panel. He's going to talk about his experience. And then we have a, a few vintners on there too, all of whom come from a Mexican-American heritage and have long careers in the, the business. We have Fabian Bravo from Brander Vineyard, and he makes his own Bravo wine company. He was actually a second generation American. He grew up in the Salinas Valley, surrounded by wine, but didn't know that much about it. Kind of went the tech route, but then came to Santa Barbara and fell in love with wine. And now that's his career. We have Fidencio Flores, who his grandfather started working at Buttonwood many, many years ago. Then his father worked for Buttonwood as well. And so now Fidencio also works at Buttonwood and he also owns his own company called Esfuerzo Wines. And so he's a, a younger third generation vintner basically which is really cool and then we have a uh, husband and wife Ruben Solorzano and Maria Monroy Ruben is known as the grape whisperer which is <laughs> kind of a cool name sometimes I get credit for having given him that nickname I'm not sure if that's entirely true but whatever I'll take the credit and so Ruben he lives at Stoltman Vineyard he is a vineyard manager extraordinary kind of handles all of the or many of the top end properties in Santa Barbara County. He's a partner in Coastal Vineyard Care, which is the kind of the number one vineyard management company out there. And then his wife, uh, Maria, is also heavily involved in Stoltman Vineyard, um, and they make their own wines as well uh, under the Stoltman brand. There's a really great wine that's actually affordably priced, like 24 bucks, maybe called uh, Maria de los Tecolotes, which is Tecolote is an owl. Um, and so she, that's like, I don't know if that's her spirit animal or what the right phrasing is, but she connects with owls. So there's this really cool wine uh, that features uh, Maria as well. So, um, so those are the people that are going to be on the panel. We're going to talk about their lives, their careers. We'll get into a little bit of like, you know, the differing cultures between uh, traditional Mexican-American culture and the wine culture, which has, uh, you know, trended very white over the decades. So I think that's starting to change finally. And so 
And that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be raising money for saying as Valley people helping people. It's a free panel, but we're hoping people will kick some donations to PHP, which is a great organization in the San Inez Valley that helps people of, of all types, particularly farm workers um, when it comes to like health needs and certain social needs. So a um, really good organization and hopefully raise some money for them and, and entertain uh, those who tune in as well. So Matt, one final question. What was your favorite experience or thing that you learned about the people featured in the El Buenaquipo chapter of the book? I think the coolest thing is seeing how many of them have used this career as a platform to lift the rest of their families, right? So a number of them have sent their kids to college, to Yale, to, you know, very high-end universities, um, basically on the, with the money and the, the support of, of the vineyard community and, and that being their, their job. So, you know, if you play your cards right and you work hard in vines, it's a very viable career for all sorts of people. And there's a lot more, I think, open pathways to go from being a vineyard worker to working in the cellar to really kind of starting your own thing. I mean, there's still still some hurdles there and there still needs a little bit more help and kind of education to uh, all of the, the employees to open the doors to higher paying positions. Um, but it's happening and I think it's increasingly um, happening. And so that's a good thing. And it's really kind of a a cool story to share with everyone. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for speaking with me about local wine culture as well as the El Buenaquipo chapter of your book. Now over to Delaney Smith with The Independent here to discuss what could be happening at the upcoming Santa Barbara City College Board of Trustees meeting this Thursday, where they will be debating whether or not vaccines will be required to take on-campus classes. So Delaney, what do you think will be happening at this meeting and how could they possibly regulate mandated vaccination for all students and staff? So this is going to be a really preliminary meeting. The trustees are just going to have their initial thoughts and discussion on on this. I can say, like, I know for a fact that trustee Jonathan Abood, um, he is, he's all for mandatory vaccination for students and staff across the board if they want to be on campus. Um, and we do have kind of a more progressive board right now, and for the most part anyway. So I can actually see this eventually, like I said, this is just a preliminary discussion this week, but I could see this really taking off. So this is kind of similar to how the UCs and the CSUs are proposing getting back into the classroom. And although this is a community college, how do you think institutions are going to be mandating this requirement? So every institution is different. Across the country, though, colleges and universities have been starting to implement this. What's happening with the UCs and the CSUs is that because this vaccine is only authorized for emergency use at this time, they are there what their proposal is is that once it is no longer emergency use and it's a, a normal use vaccine that they will have across the board with very limited exceptions um, everyone on campus has to have a vaccine and so for community colleges we have 117 in California and they're all allowed to decide in each community college district how they want to do it it's not going to be a system-wide thing like UC and CSUs so for Santa Barbara City College, again, I, I with our with the board that we do have, I see us as taking the path towards mandatory vaccination. Well, hopefully with the vaccination, we can get back into the classroom. I know virtual learning has been difficult for many individuals for the past year. Thank you so much to Delaney Smith for speaking with me about the details of the upcoming SBCC Board of Trustees meeting, as well as Matt Cutman and his story on local vineyard workers and Charles Donnellan for his behind-the-cover story on the Dalai Lama. Once again, I'm Molly McEnany, host of The Indie. Tune in next week for another episode.